This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jason Jones. Today, we have not one great guest, but two great guests, and we have a lot to talk about. My first guest is Dr. Alveda King. She is the daughter of slain civil rights activist A.D. King, uh, the niece of his brother, the Reverend Martin Luther King. She was a state representative. She is an actor, a movie producer. She's a pastoral associate for Priests for Life. We're going to be discussing the recent confession of the president of Planned Parenthood that, yes, indeed, the founder of Planned Parenthood was a racist and a eugenicist. She penned an op-ed slash uh, damage control band-aid PR piece for the New York Times. We talked to Dr. Elvita King about that. And then we go on to Del uh, Destiny Delarosa. Destiny is the founder of New Wave Feminists. She is a real feminist. And she today on the show proclaims that I am her, not only am I her frenemy, I am her very best frenemy. We talked to uh, Destiny about everything. By the way, there's an awkward transition in the middle of the show. I apologize. We just basically say, aloha, Destiny. I get in the middle of the show. It's kind of strange, but that's just the way it's going to go. All right. Um, this episode is being brought to you by Movie to Movement. Uh, Movie to Movement, our latest film, Divided Hearts of America with Benjamin Watson, explores the racist roots of the abortion industry. I believe our film, by the way, played a role, some role, in pushing Planned Parenthood to their confession this past weekend. Go to movietomovement.com. Check out our movie, Divided Hearts of America. You can also get it at Amazon, Redbox, wherever you download films. It's also This show is also being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the vulnerable. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. We are in a big fundraising push. I'll be talking more about that later in the month. But um, it's our spring fundraising campaign. We need to raise $50,000 in the next four weeks. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. And if you become a monthly donor, as you know, you get a free copy of my book, The Race to Save Our Century. And my feet right now feel wonderful because I am wearing my brand new pair of my slippers brought to you by Mike Lindell. It took Mike over two years to develop these slippers. You can wear them indoor and outdoor all day long. They're made with my pillow foam. Impact Gel, it helps prevent fatigue. It's made of a quality suede leather, has the faux fur, and for a limited time, for a limited time, like you got to do this now, Mike is offering you 40% off his new slippers. So go to myslippers.com, use the code Jones, you get deep discounts on the sheets, on the mattress topper, on the pillows, on the towel sets, but you get that 40% off on the My Slippers. You can also call 800-876-0708. That's 800-876-0708. And use the code JONES. Now, for maybe the first time ever, we have two guests in one show. The great Dr. Alveda King and my best frenemy, founder of New Wave Feminists, Destiny Delarosa. On the Jason Jones Show.
Dr. Alveda King, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Hey, aloha, Jason, to you and all of your listeners, and if you're on social media, viewers, and et cetera. Well, I, I, first of all, I, I just watched the Roe v. Wade movie. You're a good actor. Well, I've been acting. Uh, I've been a member of Screen Actors Guild and all that for many, many, many years, Jason. So thank you so much. And I'm a producer as well. So, And you're a great producer, as we all know. So well, thank you. Well, coming from you, that means a lot. But I was just really taken aback at how great of an actor you are. And um, But today, I wanted to interview you because we've been friends for, I guess, almost 30 years. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've, you and other pro-life leaders, other black pro-life leaders have been called liars. You, by, you've been, there have been campaigns of, to discredit you from Planned Parenthood. And then this weekend, after all of these years, decades and decades of work by courageous pro-life activists to to uh, try to communicate the truth about Planned Parenthood's racist past. This past Saturday, Planned Parenthood admits that it was founded by a virulent racist and eugenicist. So you must feel vindicated. Not exactly, because they're trying to walk back on it and add their little spin as well. And to me, that's just not going to be acceptable, Jason. Because what they're saying is, oh, she was a racist and we admit that. However, that's not who we are today. Well, Planned Parenthood knows for sure that the Negro Project is still being funded today, giving free vasectomy and low-priced vasectomies and free um, tubal ligations and low-priced tubal ligations to what they call the underprivileged communities, primarily the black community. You've got minorities and other underprivileged folks, too, that they include. So they are still targeting us, Abby Johnson, during this century. And, you know, she's got a great movie on all of that, saying that they targeted blacks. We know Lila Rose did an expose and has them on tape saying that they needed to use the money to abort black babies. So trying to walk it back now, oh, yes, she's terrible. We affirm that. But that's not who we are. We're here to help you. They just need to finish the sentence and say it's the date, 2021, we're here, here to help you kill your baby. They need to put that in their truth. You know, there was a, a, a former abortionist, a black woman, who said something brilliant. She said, you know, she knew of Planned Parenthood's past when she worked there. But that's not why she worked there. She said, I thought, you know, I could water an apple tree and get peaches. And then after 10 years at working at Planned Parenthood, it dawned on me that this this tree had, it's a certain type of tree that produces a certain type of fruit and the type of fruit that it produces, especially she, this is, she was talking about the neighborhood she worked in, the fruit mm-hmm. that the, the Planned Parenthood I worked at produced was dead black babies. And that's right. There was nothing. She said, that's when I left. She said that. And I think there's a lot of people trapped inside Planned Parenthood that were lured into it by the propaganda and they need to just leave. Right. I mean, this woman clearly is has double think going on because she she spent her whole life she says I, I was I've been reading about her past her whole life wanting to fight for quote unquote black and brown people now she finds herself at the top of probably the most I mean it's the most despicable organization in the history of this country the top of the list killing black and brown people and you know think about this too Jason it's very important. You had Betty Friedan, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, Larry Later, and Later is just a self-proclaimed disciple in the movie. I'm going back to the movie, movie now of Margaret Sanger. Now, 
determined to carry on that work, Dr. Nathanson has had a conversion, a transformation, which we see in the movie. Norma Corby, Norma McCorby never had an abortion. Sandra Tano of Dove v. Bolton, those two ladies never had abortion, but their lives were used to try to justify abortion. So now all of this is out in the open. It's to the lady that you're just saying. You know, two two kinds of fruits can't come off the same tree unless they slice them and try to make them into something else, and then it's no longer the original fruit anyway. So we know that people have been duped and tricked, still are being duped and tricked today. Today, Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in the United States of America and have strongholds all around the world. It is racist to identify a population and say the best way to serve that population is to kill it because it's not sustainable. And the definition of racism, I've been a racism, maybe you have, Jason, we never had this conversation, but anybody who thinks there are separate race is a racist because there's only one race, the human race of one blood that made all people. The human race is one race. So we have to all repent now trying to uphold my race needs to get along with your race. Hey, and we're not colorblind that I wrote with Ginger Howard. We are one blood, one race. The baby's heart beat just like our heart beat. Alvita, I never heard that definition of racism. Is that you? That's, that's the best the, definition of racism ever. Yeah, it is. That's racism is, is if you think you're a different I, was, race. I got nervous. I thought, I thought you were going to give that answer that racism is da da you know, there's a lot of strange no, definitions out there for racism. That's, that's the perfect Joe, definition of racist because there's no such this, thing as race. It's insane. Joe, Jason, of uh, what's this new critical race theory junk? It's not even new. It came from Darwin and all of them. There's no critical race. Right. The human critical race, the babies from the womb to the tomb, poor, sick, elderly, babies, old people, rich people, poor people, one human race. That's the critical race theory. And Satan is trying to muddy it up and have people fight over skin color, which is ludicrous. I'm going to be using that every day for the rest of my life. If you think there's more than one race, you're a racist. Racist. Period. And I have been one. I repent. I ask God to forgive me. So, no, there's one race. Acts 17, 26, the one blood God made all people. And he makes them, God makes them out of the womb. Now, people do test tubes, the mirrors where they mix up all the DNA and stuff. That's not God. No, no, no. We are human beings. Children are a gift from God. Read Psalms 127. Read Acts 17, 26, one blood. Read John 3, 16. God loves the whole world, whole human race. Do, do you think that this Alexis McGill Johnson was is sincere? Is, is she sincerely trying to correct this organization, or is this just PR? Have you ever heard of a, a saying, you can be sincerely wrong? Yes. So is she sincerely wrong, or is this just more I PR? I think she's sincerely wrong. The motives might be PR, too. We, we're used to them doing that. Mm -hmm. So this slick strategy is not going to work because people's eyes are opening. I think it's the end for Planned Parenthood, really, because you cannot admit this. And, and that you, you could admit this if you made, like, soft drinks if you were a pizza company, maybe you could admit yeah. this. But if you're, you could say, you know what? In 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 1907, the founder of you know Billy Joe Soda Pop was a racist, and we're like, well, you know, it was the time. 
You make soda pop. But if your business is killing babies and you admit that your founder was a racist and a eugenicist, you you have to close your doors. It's over. It's over. What Nathanson did, do what so many have done, do do what Alveda King did. I had secret abortions in the 70s, repented. I'm a voice for life now. So just say, Planned Parenthood, say, we're not going to abort babies anymore. We're here to help your community. We'll help you heal. Do that if, if you mean it. I remember in the early 2000s in black neighborhoods, this is when I was working at Human Life International, we had Mm -hmm. discovered, because one of our employees just happened to be driving through Detroit and went to McDonald's, that on the back of the receipts in this black neighborhood at a McDonald's, you know where you can get coupons? There Mm -hmm. were coupons for Planned Parenthood. Isn't that crazy? I know, I know. It's just... This is how insidious it has been. They're fighting again, grabbing at straws. Oh, she was a racist. We admit that, but we're different. Ask Lila Rose. Ask Abby Johnson. Ask Alveda King. Ask Jason Jones. It's not true. They're not denouncing. They're just admitting right in your face who they are. And yet there's a display of Margaret Sanger at the Holocaust Museum, which I just never understood. They're really good at propaganda. How could you have honor in the Holocaust Museum a woman, Margaret Sanger, who Hitler admired? And in the Smithsonian, all that, she spoke to the women of the KKK. Come on, guys. Now, but they're still doing it. It, it. That You know, we could say that was then, this is now. But right now, you're still aborting an astronomical amount of babies, period. And the largest chunk is on the smallest group in America, the black minority group. So stop it. Over 50% of black children in New York conceived or destroyed before they're born well jason i thank you for this opportunity people need to read my book we're not colorblind uh my king rules book talks about this i've got so many books father frank pavone has written a forward at least on one of my books if not more so visit us at civil rights for the unborn dot org i'm going to put it all in the show notes Alvita, I know you've got a busy day today. You'd probably have 100 interviews. Thank you for making time for us. Thank you, Jason. God bless. Bye. God bless. Destiny Della Rosa, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Hey, thanks for having me. It is great to have you on. I have a question. Are you and I friends? I mean, you're the new wave feminists. Or are we frenemies? Are we? I would say... I would say we're the best of frenemies. We're the best of frenemies. I like that. You're my best frenemy. That's true. Yeah. This is very true. We fight all the time. My wife is like, why do you talk to her? All you do is <laughs> argue with her. Why are you calling I mean, her? It's better than arguing with other people in our life. We just reserve it for each other. And I think that's actually a really healthy coping mechanism. Or scapegoats. <laughs> yeah. Or like we take it out. Like We just put our rage into each other all the time. So yeah, I'm I like this frenemy frenemyship. I don't think that I think we see each other as useful because we care a lot about the same things and we speak into different places. But sure, we'll go with that. But I you know, one of my problems with you pro life feminists <laughs> is that you're really feminists and it's not like a game. Like it's not like a tactic. Yeah, contrary to popular belief, we're <laughs> you know, really I would like you to be feminist. just a tactic. Could you just be a tactic? <laughs> and but you're really not a feminist. You're just it's something you say to be pro-life too fem, but that's what they think. Right. And that's what a lot of us yeah. think. And then we're shocked. Oh my gosh, they're really feminists. 
yeah, they think we're co-opting, but no, the feminism it runs it runs deep. We're we're deep down very much like Jason haters, and so like yeah, <laughs> people, not not all men. No, your haters, people hate me every time. Every time you're on my show, it's the only time I get like ones in my review, and I know they're your fi- your fans. Like we love that Destiny was on, but eh, there's a one. Oh, it's cute that you think our fans would listen to your podcast. That's well, only when you're on. <laughs> only when you're on, and that's when I get a bunch of ones. Hey, I'll take that because you're assuming those aren't ones because people hate me who are your audience, which actually makes much more sense. No, but we can go with your history. My people are nice. They would, but that would be <laughs> dumb if you didn't like one of my guests and you gave me a one, but you liked me. Would be ridiculous. I don't know. I think they're trying to say never have this woman back on your show, and then you're just you're not learning. So here you I'm go. A slow learner. Okay. So by the way, you know, just being on the show, you're helping Mike Lindell sell pillows. The code is Jones. It's mypillow.com, the radio listener square, and you get these amazing slippers. I'm going to get you for Christmas. When's your birthday? Uh, August. I'm a Leo. All right. So in August, you're going to get a, your birthday present from me is going to be the MyPillow slippers because they're amazing. I'll, I'll try the slippers. We had a my pillow, actually, believe it or not, and my dog chewed it up. So it's great dog food, but uh, not not great for me anymore. You so I'll try to, the slippers. You need out. to discipline your dogs. Okay, so the reason I wanted to have you on, I just had Alvita on in the first segment. The reason I wanted to have you on, and I normally don't have like other, like I've ever had two segments. This is like the first time. Um, but I, I texted you the Planned Parenthood apology, and you had the best one liner. Yes. So we have to tell the audience that the name of this, it was a New York Times op-ed by Alexis McGill Johnson, who's the new president of Planned Parenthood. And so I'm sure the New York Times is the one who picked out this headline, but it says, I'm the head of Planned Parenthood. We're done making excuses for our founder. But then literally it's like a 1,000 word essay full of 5,972 excuses for how she was racist, but why it's okay that she still founded Planned Parenthood. And here's the irony of it. They're basically saying, yeah, she was trash. She was in the eugenics. She spoke at Klan rallies. We admit all this. But at our core, we still encompass her very eugenic views, and you shouldn't be mad at us for that. Like, it's complete insanity. Like, this thing reads almost like a satire piece, and we posted it to New Wave Feminists, and it got a lot of comments, and I thought somebody surely would be defending it. Not one comment was defending it because everybody was like, what type of word salad did we just read? It's a completely bonkers article that actually I feel like even taught me more about her racism than I already knew. And I thought I knew most of it. Like, did you have that same thing happen to you? No, I mean, but I, this is, you know, I just made a movie on the racism of Margaret Sanger. And when I came into the pro-life movement as a, an atheist in the 90s, one of the first things that captured me was, how racist Margaret Sanger was, and it was startling. And so it's something yeah. I've been researching for a very, very, like, 30 years and worked with Akua Furlow. When, when she was working with her book, she was living at Human Life International when she was working on her book because we had this great library, so I got to know her well, her book on Margaret Sanger. And, um, but, yeah, no, I think this is the end of Planned Parenthood because there's two responses you're going to have to this. One, like us, you have been calling us liars forever when we bring this up, Right vicious, slanderous attacks against us for just trying to tell the truth about Margaret Sanger. And then all of those 
defenders of Planned Parenthood out there are like, wait, are you saying that we were defending you and you, she was actually a racist and a eugenicist? Right? So I think that's going to be a lot of Planned Parenthood supporters are going to be startled by this. Don't you think? I wish. I, Don't you think? I feel like they constantly, they constantly move the goalposts. So that's my fear is that it becomes like just accepting it or, you know, trying to, well, you know, Susan B. Anthony had some problematic stuff too and she was a pro-life feminist, right? Like you feel them just constantly kind of like shifting and changing. I will say, so the thing that stuck out to me in this article um, was them admitting the, the Klan rally thing, right? Because for the longest time within the pro-life movement, there's been this image of her speaking uh, at a Klan rally with them in the hoods, and she's right in the center on this, um, like standing on a soapbox. And I had actually heard from pro-life leaders that not to share this meme ever because it was actually photoshopped; it wasn't real. And so, for some reason in my head, I thought, "Oh, okay, so she didn't really do that." Then, turns out maybe the the picture was doctored; they didn't have an actual picture of her. But she truly did speak there. And so that's what this article talks about, that she she knew her audience. Like, these are people who agree with me because I'm specifically targeting people of color and, and the undesirables, right? And so we're going to make sure that uh, this goes into our plan for the future. And when we look at, obviously, abortion clinics and everything else, they're in low-income, low predominantly minority neighborhoods all the time. And so... Just by saying, okay, we disagree with what she was doing. Okay, so then are you going to bulldoze all of those clinics that were 100% following this model and this plan that she laid out? Because words are just words. The actions are what has built Planned Parenthood to what it is today, and it's still thriving and alive and well. Yeah, and I always try to be really fair, you know, because I'm not by nature, right? So I'm very emotional, quick to respond. So I always I try to be fair. And so I ask myself, I know, I know for a fact, right? And you would agree with me, I'm sure, that most people working at Planned Parenthood today are not virulent racists. I think that is a very safe assumption, right? So all the young women that work there, they don't walk in there holding, they actually probably like Abby Johnson, they actually think they're helping these women. But the problem is... I mean, I I think there's exceptions, right? When you get to the higher levels, like there was another article last year that came out talking about the racism from within Planned Parenthood. So I think at the higher level, they're definitely... What they've done is they've done a great job marketing, um, especially to Latina young women uh, that are in these neighborhoods. Come in, this is where we can get healthcare and all these other things. So the mouthpieces and, and the young women that they have working there who have not studied the history of this. Um, I don't think any of them are doing it with racist intent, but I absolutely 100% think by the time you're getting to director levels and things like that, they know what the end game is. They know what the, the master plan was behind this. Now, see, you are the big liberal here, but I don't, I find that just so hard to believe because here's why I find it hard to believe. Most people just hold to the ideologies of evil that are of their age. You know, and to be a virulent racist today is you're not going to be swept away in an enthusiasm today to be a racist, right? And and that's why I even look back at the racism of Margaret Sanger. And I think why she really needs to be held accountable and Planned Parenthood needs to just change its name, close its doors and stop. And if they want to keep their clinics open, they should just now have pregnancy centers, get rid of the abortions, 
right? And said, we want to help women. We want to undo the legacy of Margaret Sanger. Um, but I just, oh, I want to bring this point up. The problem with Margaret Sanger is, and I look back, okay, it's 1920, 1919. She, was she more racist than her age, right? Like I look at Thomas Jefferson, he was a man of his age. Um, where his age was great, he was great. Where his age was off, he was off. Then you look at John Adams, and he was a great man, a man better than his age. Margaret Sanger, her racism went beyond the spirit of her age, right, to a whole new level. In fact, that she inspired Hitler. She's like pre-Hitler. Hitler was inspired by her writings. Her racism what, you know, went above and beyond the evil of her age. So it's not like even saying, oh, our founder... You know, pretty much anything that was founded and we would be repulsed by the views of any business that was founded in 1919, right? Because they would be different than ours in so many ways. But Margaret Sanger was a virulent racist and a virulent eugenicist who went on to inspire very bad people. And now one of your friends that we interviewed for our documentary had the great, she, the way she put it was beautiful. She said, I worked for Planned Parenthood, even though I knew their past, because I wanted to help black women. That was her whole thing. She said, but I knew their past. And then after 10 years, I realized I had been watering an apple tree, hoping I get peaches mm. and that we just need to chop the tree down. And so I think Planned Parenthood acknowledging that they were founded by a racist and a eugenicist is the end of the organization. If they made soda, right? If they were a potato chip company, I think they would survive being founded by a racist, but they destroy children in the womb and they're acknowledging that their founder was a racist and eugenicist. And to this day, 80, what is it? 80% over 80% of their abortion clinics are in minority neighborhoods and 100% of their fertility clinics are in affluent white neighborhoods. So when you, you look at those facts and then you look at who their founder is, isn't it just time to close the doors? Right, right. And that's the point. You know, the fact that this article is no more excuses, but here's all the excuses. I think they absolutely know what's happening. So I just looked it up. It was a Harper Bazaar article uh, from November 23rd of last year, and it's the racial reckoning inside Planned Parenthood. And so it is about the racism at the upper echelons of the organization. So I think that we are going to see more and more articles like this as we as a nation become more aware of racial justice and start looking at the, the rotten root that we see um, in a lot of stuff in this country, you know, and, and the racism of people's times back in the day when our nation was founded. These are the things we're weeding out right now. And Planned Parenthood absolutely is one of those things um, that we need to look at. But I would say as a pro-life feminist, um, for us, the way that as, as this implodes and which I think you're right. I think that some huge things are going to be happening when it comes to that organization. But what we have to realize is that there are a lot of uninsured women who still need access to health care. And I make the argument all the time that I think this is an amazing opportunity for the pro-life movement to come in and build up health clinics. So pregnancy centers are wonderful and definitely meet a lot of needs in communities. But when it comes to cervical exams, STD screenings, um, basic women's health care, there is still a huge gap for that. And that is the bread and butter of Planned Parenthood, right? They get women in for well woman exams or, uh, you know, preventative medicine. And then what they end up doing is they, they familiarize themselves with this community. They become viewed as 
part of the community, helpers, safe people. And then when a woman experiences a crisis pregnancy, that's where she goes back to, maybe not even knowing what she wants to do. And of course, they realize that a $500 termination is quite a few, you know, birth control visits and pap smear visits and all these other things. And so that is where they get so much of their income, even though they, they try to say constantly, oh, it's only 3% of what we do. Um, ultimately, it is a large chunk of, of their profit margin. And so that is what they've been selling. That's why I don't think that they will ever become a facility that does not offer abortion. Um, they, they just make literally a killing off of it. So I don't see them switching that part of the model. But I think there is a huge way in a capitalist nation to give them some competition, cut the legs off from under them. Like, how do we build up something as big as Planned Parenthood uh, that offers nonviolent women's health care? I think we have an amazing opportunity right now to do that. No, I, I agree. And I mean, look, 90% of all money raised and whenever people ask me, do you think the pro-life movement is too political? I'm like, no, you know, we ha- we're not telling the truth. People aren't telling the truth about our movement. 90% of all volunteer hours, over 90% of all volunteer hours, all donations go to support pregnancy centers. So it's, you know, to do this, it's going to take a lot of effort and it's going to take a lot of people to step up, all of us. Right, and right. And, and I think we do, we do a great job of meeting needs for the pregnant woman. But here's the deal. If we care about the woman as much as we care about the child, we can't just be providing services when she's with child. It has to also be when the woman is just a woman. She's enough on her own. And so making sure that we have these healthcare alternatives for her, I think is vitally important and a way to show that we truly do care about the woman, um, maybe even after a pregnancy, before a pregnancy, all of these other times, because Planned Parenthood's model, I'm telling you, that is how they get so ingratiated in these communities and uh, build that trust with them. And I think if we put some of our, um, you know, funds and everything else towards building this, I actually talked to a legislator one time who said, he was a conservative and he said, people are constantly asking me to vote on defunding Planned Parenthood. But until there is an alternative, I really don't know how to do that. Give me some other place to allocate these government funds to that's doing the same well, thing. Can you, do you want to say his name or no? No, because I always mispronounce his name. And it was supposed to be a secret meeting, but you know, I talk about it all the no, time. No, well, no, <laughs> but he's a fool. He's another fool. Like, he no, can't no, find, no. He, the reason he's not about. voting for Planned Parenthood is... Because he's afraid of Planned Parenthood. Like, they kill children, and he's me, like... Tell me the, tell me the state, because I think we're talking about a different person. I don't know. I don't know who you're talking about. But if he told... I'm talking about somebody from Nebraska. So, I don't think we're talking about the same person. I don't know how this person has actually voted. He was just saying it would make it oh, much easier okay. for him to vote to defund if he could allocate to somewhere else. Yeah. And, and I totally agree Maybe with him, because I will tell you, when I'm talking to my pro-choice friends, and I'm talking about the evils of Planned Parenthood, their response is, I'm uninsured, and that's where I go for, you know, these things, and I was able to find out that I had some, you know, issues or whatever from this place, and so for them, this is their health care, and I think that making sure women have a comparable alternative healthcare-wise. Oh, no, look, it, it is really striking the difference in healthcare in different communities, and but I will say that the blue states, so you know, a couple years ago when I almost died on the road campaigning for Ted Cruz, I got exertional rhabdomyolysis and ended up in a hospital. Maybe that was karma. Karma. Keep going. No, I, <laughs> I was supporting Beto, I, maybe, but no. So I, I was totally healthy. I was totally healthy <laughs> okay. that whole campaign, so I don't know. Well, 
you know, it was a privilege to suffer for my beliefs. So I ended up in this hospital for two weeks with this thing called exertional rhabdomyolysis. So then as I traveled, I continued to travel afterwards and they wanted to keep me in the hospital longer. They said, we'll let you out, but you got to get your blood tested. Every morning I had to get my blood test every morning. And, um, I would travel the country and I would go to try to find hospitals or, or clinics anywhere to go get my blood test. Cause I had to get my blood tested every morning. In Texas, it was like going to Starbucks. You'd go to these really bright, well-lit, beautiful places that are all, all over the state, these clinics. I would get my results the same day, super easy. When I would be in blue cities and blue states, I remember I was in Indianapolis in the most disgusting facility, surrounded by all of these moms with their children, with the green boogers bubbling up or broken arms, and we were all sitting there and, um, and it was in a, you know, a poor neighborhood and it was just a really horrible experience. Imagine the DMV with sick people, right? Just half the lights were out. Um, furniture was from the seventies and it was just a really gross facility took forever. And then it was like, you'll get your results in seven days. I'm like, well, I need, they need my results every day. Um, so look, there is a great disparity in healthcare, and I have to imagine there's some neighborhoods or communities, the only quote-unquote medical facility in the neighborhood is Planned Parenthood. But Planned Parenthood is there. Their founder built this machine. Oh, they're there to pray. They're there they're to there, pray yeah, they're on They're praying the on that community. That's the way to put it, yeah. A hundred percent. But I think we do agree on the, the problem, and you know, you being a male, you, you probably are less familiar with just well woman care and the access to that. And I will say, and I don't know if this is every red state, I don't try to get passengers everywhere, but here in Texas, being uninsured and a cash pay patient, I can tell you it's incredibly hard um, to find GPs or gynecologists. And so I think the national average is like most states have 42% GPs, uh, just general practitioners that can offer these services. In Texas, it's something like 34%. And then in Dallas, in particular, where I am, it's like 24%. So, and it's just a matter of most of the doctors here, it's kind of the affluent area. And so they go into plastic surgery or specialty type things because they make more money. And so we actually have a huge deficit of just uh, people who can offer well women's care. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's kind of happening um, on a national level too. I don't know the breakdown of red and blue, but I will say that I know for a lot of women, Planned Parenthood has become the number one place for them. And, and it's a it's a franchise, right? So people are familiar with it. I actually stopped protesting in front of Planned Parenthood uh, about probably six or seven years ago, because I'll tell you what happened. We were there for 40 days for life speaking. And this car pulls up in front of us. And he's like, what are y'all protesting? And we were like, uh, you know, abortion and, and we're pro-life feminists and we're here. And he's like, oh, well, what are you protesting in front of? Because we were like next to a subway, like a sandwich shop. And we're like, oh, Planned Parenthood. And he goes, oh, there's a Planned Parenthood over there? And got excited. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to draw any more attention <laughs> to these places, like in these communities. Granted, they're all a Google search away. They are, they are in, um, always in low-income communities. And they're always pretty obvious where they're at. But I know that regular women's health care centers are much, uh, especially the ones that are not chains, are much harder to find. And even when you call and try to find out, you know, is this one that's going to offer an abortion? Um, I would, I would say it's really difficult to find out as, as a pro-life feminist, if I'm going to a place that is going to refer for abortions or not. 
Um, because a lot of times they, they know it's controversial. They keep that really close to the chest. And so I think that there's a lot of pro-life women who, if they are uninsured, are having a hard time finding health care um, like this. And so in my mind, again, in a capitalist society, the best way to take on Planned Parenthood is to give them some competition, cut their legs off from under them that way. No, I agree 100%. We, we need to – it's not that we're competing with Planned Parenthood. We need to be – which I think we do our best, right? Like I, I love our movement and the way people, the truth of our movement is not communicated. Everywhere I go in the country, I, I will do, I used to look at the yellow pages and I would rip out the abortion clinics from the yellow pages. <laughs> and, um, but there would always be more pregnancy centers than abortion clinics. In most places I would go, there wouldn't be an abortion clinic, but there would be one or two pregnancy centers. Didn't matter how small the community was. And now when I travel, though, it's different. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You, when you're, you look for a restaurant or you look uh, for your hotel on your map, whatever app you're using, Planned Parenthood's logo, if they're near you, will show. So they're paying for that. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're well, they have, they have the blood money for the marketing. I mean, right. that's 100% what it comes down to. Whereas pregnancy centers, even the ones, and I will say, I, I love what we're seeing when it comes to pregnancy centers also offering medical care like STD screening. We've got a place uh, in Texas called The Source that does that. So they offer pretty much everything Planned Parenthood does, stands abortion, and we already have the brick and mortar building. So it would not be too hard to, to kind of add more medical services for women. But I totally agree. We don't have the blood money they do to advertise and franchise. And the taxpayer and, dollars, and right? Like they're getting a lot of taxpayer money. Yeah, yeah, so, but I think if we created a system, that money could be reallocated to us. Let's switch from Planned Parenthood. There's another very sorrowful story that was really unbelievable. I thought it was fake news when I first saw it. I thought it was some kind of cruel joke. And um, in Argentina, a, a leading advocate for decriminalizing abortion died. Uh, when was it? Earlier in the month, I guess. And it was just being reported. Uh, of an of a of a legal abortion, are you familiar with this story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, they just legalized abortion there last year. We actually have a new age feminist chapter down there, and so it's been interesting to watch because our work is the same whether abortion is legal or illegal. And in Argentina, uh, you know, they have a lot of struggles with poverty, obviously, and so even though abortion wasn't legalized. It was definitely still happening, um, and people knew where where to get them. And so the whole idea was we're going to legalize it and make it safe. And that's just a lie. We know that that's a lie. First of all, it's never safe for the human being that dies if an abortion procedure is successful. But even for women, it's not safe. And it is it is really heartbreaking that this activist um, lost her life to this. And then another one, evidently in Venezuela last month, also lost her life. Like these huge um, proponents for for safe, I'm using air quotes to get them, uh, abortion are dying from it because it's not a safe procedure uh, for the child ever, but often for the woman as well. Yeah, that's really startling and heartbreaking. And so does this, well, you know, you walk on the edge. Well, when I hear you talk, sometimes I'm like, is Destiny really pro-life? And then you're like, yeah, she really is. And then I know your feminist supporters are like, is she really, fa I mean, it's, it's a strange place that you're walking on this line that you walk on. Right. But what, what it shouldn't be strange because the founding or maybe this, I don't know, there's third wave. How many explain to me feminism 
your relationship with feminists, because this is a woman's issue that this just highlighted these two women that died who were, were obviously fighting for legal abortion because they cared for women. And I always tell this to people. Um, I think really the only people in this country that really care for women are pro-life activists and pro-choice activists. Just pro-choice activists are really wrong on the facts. And yeah. but we're both willing to be hated by half of America, right? And so we're not doing this. There's no gain on either side, right? There's if if you take a side publicly as an advocate on either side of this issue, the only sensible reason would be you really care about women. Now I'm not talking about these these executives at Planned Parenthood. I'm talking about the the, the activists who are nose to nose with, right? And and. Yeah. So these young women who died, they really cared about women, right? Uh, they right. they really did. That that they were mistaken on the facts. Um, no, they they bought into this lie. And the way we explain pro life feminism, because I actually get everyone to hate me with that one, uh, is that feminism is rooted in this idea that people are not property, right? Women were treated as property for most of history. And we are not property. And through our rights and liberation, we should look around and say, what other vulnerable, you know, subsets of, of the human family are being marginalized, being treated like property? And we should use our strength and liberation to um, fight the oppression against them, not hand the oppression down. We talk about patriarchy all the time because um, I'm a good feminist, so I have to say it at least five times a day. So when I talk about patriarchy, I'm talking about structures that were built for men by men. And we live in a society right now that does not accommodate fertility. There's actually a, a big liability when it comes to uh, us getting pregnant, whether in academia or the workforce. Uh, for most women, it's, it's a pretty terrifying thing. And so we realize that our lives are going to change and probably become more difficult because we don't live in a society that accommodates female fertility. And so when you start looking at the pro-abortion you know, feminists, really what they're saying is we're fine in settling for the status quo, which is the male body is the, the normative subject. That's the default. We're trying to become like the male body. We are getting rid of our fertility, whether by suppressing it, denying it, you know, abortion, whatever these things are, we're trying to fit into the mold of the male normative body so that we can, you know, function in society. And as pro-life feminists, we're saying no, there should be a culture that is built to support women. And so it is incredibly sad to see these women in Argentina who thought that this was, this was what they needed in order to have successful, healthy lives. And it's backfiring on them. We knew that was going to happen. You know, uh, Ireland just legalized a few years ago as well. And everybody thinks that this is going to be their saving grace when really all it does is prey on women, especially disadvantaged, vulnerable women. So low-income minority women, um, we know that that's the end game. This, this has a lot to do with population control. It has a lot to do with capitalism. And it is much easier for a government to subsidize an industry that can give you a $500 abortion than potentially have to support 18 years of what is by definition an unplanned for pregnancy and person. And so it comes down to the bottom line. And yet these governments have convinced women like, no, this is for you. This is, and, and it's funny because I always picture it as like the cruelest form of reverse psychology. Like I don't think, and, and we see this globally in a lot of uh, like African communities where abortion is this foreign concept and you have these white savior types 
that go over there and say, we, you know, oh, your husband's raping you or you've got child, forced child marriages or these horrible things that are happening. Like, we're going to give you abortion as if it's a trip to Fiji. Like, they don't want abortion. That idea has not crossed their, their minds. Like, how about we stop the rape? How about we stop this abuse of children? How about we stop these atrocities that are truly, uh, you know, these patriarchal strongholds? Why don't we actually treat women as human beings? And instead, they give this Band-Aid solution of abortion. And you have to wonder why. Well, it's because it's, it's cheaper. It's the lazier cop-out version of activism uh, is to just offer a woman an abortion rather than saying, no, we need to change these foundational structural problems with our culture that do not accommodate life and do not support women and children. You know, it's um, in our experience just recently in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan, uh, one of an organization that we work closely with was working in the Nuba Mountains and all these women, they built a medical facility and all these women were coming in complaining that since they got their inoculations, they get some UN, some agency came and gave them vaccines. They could not um, have children. None of the women got pregnant. And, and the doctor would ask some questions and he realized that they had, I think it's called Norplant. They had some sort of um, contraception device that's, that's put into the body. And he had to remove, he, he removed it. Um, yeah. And so these yeah, women, against their will, the government of Khartoum is waging a brutal war of genocide against these the Nuba people. They're the most beautiful people. Like They're equally divided uh, among Christians, animists, and Muslims. But they live together in harmony. They're just the most beautiful community. Like if the Nuba ruled the world, the world would be a much better place. And... Um, but, you know, you, you said these white savior types came there and they probably thought without getting these women's permission by injecting contraception into their arms, they were liberating them. They probably believed this. We have a long history of that, um, of forced sterilization from Fannie Lou Hamer to even uh, there was broadly did an article years ago about uh, the trials that were done for birth control in Puerto Rico on Puerto Rican nurses. And basically to be part of this nursing program, you had to agree to do this trial for birth control. And this is when the estrogen levels were incredibly high. They were basically a bunch of guinea pigs. Uh, it sterilized some of them. They had to have hysterectomies. I think a couple even committed suicide. I mean, their racism and eugenics and the birth control and abortion movement are incredibly tied in together. And I think, you know, I, I know we disagree here, but I believe that if women understand birth control and, and, you know, want access to it and know all of the information, I think that they should be allowed to have that. But the problem is we are talking about women who it is done completely without consent against their even knowledge that these things are being put in their body. And we have a long, long, long history in America of this being done to marginalized groups. So it shouldn't be shocking at all. When I was at the UN, um, there were so many panels about abortion access and it was heartbreaking by the last day. I'm like, I never want to come back. Like, this just feels evil. Everything's terrible. And on the very last day, I actually went to an abortion trauma panel, which I was surprised they were even ha uh, able to have. But it was Canada and Samoy had put it on. And this room was full of women, um, I'm assuming of African descent, who had the beautiful gowns on and the headdresses and stuff. And I mean, packed, standing room only in this room where women were talking about the medical issues with abortion and getting perforated uteruses and all these other things. And, you know, here in the States, we see this happening on a daily basis. Um, 
as much as I might disagree with some of Operation's tactics, they've got an email list where every single day, pretty much, they send out images of women being carted away from abortion facilities on gurneys into ambulances or a nurse's car, you know, if they don't want to draw attention to it, like really horrific stuff. But you see this happening all the time here. But we also have slightly better medical care. So it's not always something that is going to lead to the sterilization of women. But when you're talking about going to third world countries that don't even have facilities that can address this uh, and introducing something like abortion, like you are absolutely going to kill off populations of people. And the fact that these women saw that, they knew it was happening. They were aware of it. That's why they were in you know, this session, because they knew it was coming for them. And I was really relieved, first of all, to see that the UN, you know, allowed for this session to take place. Um, but it was really encouraging to see how many women noticed it and said, like, we see that you guys are trying to push this crap on us, and we're not falling for it. Like, this is, you're coming after us. Like, they knew exactly what was happening. No, yeah, no, when I, I had the privilege of showing Crescendo to the UN, and I was shocked at all the pro-life sentiment that was there when I, right before we screened Crescendo, I said, you know, we made this movie to promote human dignity against ideologies of evil. No organization does more to promote ideologies of evil than the United Nations. So it's a great privilege to share with you of all people, my film, right? And you know, I, I don't care. I was expecting awkward silence. I was going to smile and walk off the stage. I got a three-minute standing ovation before the film played for that line. And, mm -hmm. it, again, it was like you said, it was, it was the African and, and South American, and the, the ambassador from the Philippines, was, was, she was hooting and hollering and, and jumping up and down on her chair. So well, because you have to realize it's colonization, right? That's a ton of what the UN's doing right now. I don't even think they realize it. I was at one of their other events in Salt Lake City, and they had this whole declaration about uh, climate uh, the climate crisis, which I do believe in and I support, but the whole thing was written about we need to start growing our own food and making our own clothes and this whole list of stuff that like half the room who wasn't from America is like, what are you talking about? We already do that. Like, there is just such an American lens of colonization that's going out to these other countries that are like, miss me with that. Like, that's ridiculous what you're saying. So I do, I do think that even the people who participate in the UN, a lot of them do have incredibly good intentions and they see and they want they want the UN to correct course. But when you have a toxic ideology, like they've got vendor booths set up sometimes at their events and they literally had one that was called population connection. And so I stopped by the table and, you know, had purple hair and a nose ring and stuff and the chick's like super excited to talk to me and she's like, Yeah, Trump's doing all this was a couple of years ago. Trump's doing all these abortion bans and blah, blah, blah. And you know, I hate Trump's guts with the fire of a million suns. You know that. <laughs> but at the I same don't know. Time, your like, hair, you, you, your hair is not purple anymore. I thought you might be pro Trump. I, I was going to send you a mega hat. Black, so. I, I saw Ugh. your hair's black oh. again. I'm like, maybe she loves Jesus again and she's going to wear a Trump hat. So, you know what? I was all right. Send I'm, you dying it. I'm dying it back to purple this afternoon if that's the message you <laughs> got. But the funny thing was, when I was sitting there talking to this woman and she's telling me all this Trump stuff, and I am so torn in this moment, but I'm also like, she thinks I'm, I'm, one of them like she thinks I'm I'm in agreement with her so I just start taking all of this paperwork every bit of it that I can get my hands on and I said so this is like a population control thing right and she's like oh well we don't like to call it that and I was like no but I mean come on that's what it is and she's like yeah we don't call it that and okay like I will say I'm an independent right so I can talk trash about the left and the right the left has a way of 
word policing so many things to make them sound prettier than they actually are. And it doesn't matter if you're not calling it that. You are pushing population control at a UN sanctioned event. You had permission to be here to talk about population control. And I think that's a very disturbing fact. And I actually think that's an argument for why more of us need to be involved in the United Nations stuff, because if we just let them keep going, they are a force and they are going to be doing some really um, scary global work in the future. And seeing these people from African countries and Middle Eastern countries like showing up and trying to stand against that, I think we need to be there with them and just saying this this doesn't fly. This absolutely is eugenics. This absolutely is um, racism and it's rooted in population control against those that are deemed unfit and and it is colonizing that's what's happening and we need to be vocally against it well and it's you know as a conservative a lot of my audience is going to like colonizing it's not old school colonization it's it's facebook it's nike it's apple i don't know if you saw this week it just uh video has surfaced that china is literally selling uyghur slaves on the internet have you seen this no. Yeah, I have an article coming out on this week. They literally have video ads from within China where you can buy Uyghur slaves. It is absolutely unbelievable. And then you have Nike has admitted that they use forced labor to make their products. And they said, we've, you know, well, we're going to try to stop doing that. Oh, good for you. Um, they, they picked cotton. Literally, the Uyghurs pick cotton and make textiles. Um, and... Okay. We have American corporations participating in that. The problem is my, what I have found when I go to the UN, you know, I went to Iraq and I brought an ISIS, two ISIS survivors to, to the UN to speak at a, a conference on displaced peoples. And the whole conference was on the number one cause of in, a displaced peoples is um, global warming, which is clearly whatever you think about global warming, that is insane. And we, we, I kind of bullied, I shoulder-checked to get documented. Jason, why, why is that insane, though? Like, we've talked before about you said that COVID was going to shut down food production. And in a lot of these places, especially well, in did. South America, we're seeing, we're seeing that right now because they can't even grow crops because it's getting well, so hot. You, That's I, why I, so I will many migrants to you, are giving the equator. I, I, I will answer to you why it's insane. This was five years ago when ISIS was running amok and half of Syria and Iraq were fleeing in, to, to Europe and drowning in boats. So and it was violence. That it was, was it was American foreign policy failures and radical Islamism. And I had I brought a Muslim woman who, by the way, Dr. Namam Kafari just passed away. God bless her. We're gonna do a whole show on her. I love her. She's just one of the most wonderful people. I don't know if you knew that she passed away. Um, I didn't. yeah, so she sad. she died um while rescuing women in Syria, getting them to wow. a safe house. She um got COVID twenty, what they call the Middle Eastern strain. And died. Mm. and she's just one of the most wonderful people. But I, I brought her in an ISIS survivor who had been cut up, experimented on, literally beaten, raped, left for dead in the desert in a rug, in a carpet they threw out of a truck. And the Peshmerga saw her, rescued her. And then I brought her several months after this happened to the United Nations and Dr. Namam Ghaffari and this ISIS survivor to speak. And... Dr. Namam Ghaffari said, you know, in all due respect, as a Muslim woman, um, it's been Western foreign policy, regime change wars, and radical Islamism. That is the number one cause right now of displaced people. And they, they, they were literally had speakers trying to say that ISIS was the fruit of global warming. That's insane. 
Do you know what the response of the woman sharing the panel when Dr. Namam Ghaffari got up and, and made her statement and then asked a question? She banged her gavel and dismissed the meeting. You have a doctor from Sweden. You have a Kurdish woman, you know, born in a cave hiding from Iraqi artillery who became a surgeon, then would spend half her life in Iraq and Syria caring for the victims of ISIS, literally going into ISIS-controlled territory to care for these people. And she gets up there... To, to say what her experience is, even if you dis, even if somewhere in the world there were massive floods and people for Ecuador were running to the U.S. border, whatever, um, even if that were the case, you would still want to listen to the perspective of the ISIS survivor. Bang the gavel, not even a word in response, just bang the gavel and dismiss the, dismiss the meeting. Yeah, I will say that that's a huge problem with you and is not listening to the people who are actually suffering it, right? It's putting, you know, oftentimes more affluent people's solutions onto impoverished people's problems. And that's what um, we've seen happen down at the border, which I told you, that's where we go from uh, frenemies to enemies and we talk about immigration. So that's an off-topic thing for us. But I will say that- Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you even know, have we, you, do you even read my writing on immigration? Much. I do, I do. And we still fight way too much about it. Like, it's just, I want to say you're frenemies. And so, so I know, but I will give you this one anecdote that as we're working down there, the UN has um, a program where they have been giving kind of like gift cards to uh, the shelters that, that we help with and these gift cards are for like sam's club or you know whatever would be the equivalent to like a tom thumb or a nicer type grocery store that none of them are in the areas that where the shelter is you have to have a club membership to get to them you definitely have to have a car to be able to get there and a lot of the volunteers are like this is just not feasible so you can give us all the money you want to be able to get groceries and supplies but until you know my community and know that that's not a place we can ever afford to shop. It's kind of a waste of money in this area. Like we don't have a membership to, to the Sam's Club version down there. All these different things. Like you're out of touch, and so a lot That's of it ends up going ridiculous. By the way, that is hysterical. Yeah, or, that is or the funny. volunteers. The volunteers have to work really hard to arrange rides, to do all this stuff, to be able to do it. And it's just a case where the UN is coming in and being like, I don't know, having some intern Google like something, and then saying, Oh, this is probably what you want. And what I've realized to not have that white savior uh, mentality, because we're always very aware of it working at the border, is you go into the community, you get to know the people, you find out how you can better support them. Not, this is what I think you got. Like one of the things I remember that we did at the very beginning working with the shelter was maybe we should get you guys security cameras. And then we go down there and we find out, first of all, they have an electricity cap. So having something that would be running nonstop wouldn't be good. Second, um, you know, this is something in a kind of heavy cartel area that would actually put a huge target on them. So, like, all of my stupid, like, American ideas that I wanted to do to help the shelter, they were like, yeah, no, in, in 20 seconds, here's why none of your ideas work. But this is what we need. This is how you could help us. And I think that that's a big part is you, you go to the community, you get to know the people, you form those relationships, and then you say, how can we support the work that you're already doing? And that's how you get away from that white savior type complex that, it's oftentimes humanitarian aid that's counterproductive or, or doesn't work at all. Yeah, no, Rene Girard calls that victimism, feigning concern for the vulnerable for prestige, wealth, power, influence, whatever. Um, but I, I, I want to know, I want to see, tell me how you think we differ on immigration. 
Jason, I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> we won't. You we and won't. I have had so many arguments on this. I think you. I think you need to come with us to Juarez. And our volunteer down there has already said because remember the first time you met her, I feel like you guys argued a whole lot. Yes. And she and, and but we, I don't we adore definitely her. kind of. I adore her. Here's the deal. After we left, she's like, I really like Jason, and I'm like. Jason, that Jason, I barely like that Jason. What are you talking about? She's like, no, there's just something good in him. I like him. And so I was like, all right, I don't know what you're seeing. Like, show it to me. And so she's like, I would really love for him to come to our shelter and and meet the women and do that. So she really wants uh, you and a couple of the people that that we met in Chicago to come down and and just see the women. I think it just adds a more nuanced view. Not it is not a monolith down there. It's not all rapists and cartel and traffickers and it's a lot of women and children who are fleeing from extreme violence, which I know you have a heart for. And so I think we well, just that's need to why get to I want, Juarez. But again, that's why, look, I am for massive immigration, right? Everyone who wants, to, let them come here. I am against an uncontrolled border uh, where we allow the cartels and the smugglers to have more control over our border than we do. So because my great concern is the exploitation of the vulnerable at the border, Vulnerable Americans right. and vulnerable migrants. And right. e- equally as repulsive to me is that we have an economy that rests, that is designed to rest upon the exploitation of migrant labor in an underground economy. I would like oh, 100%. To, I would really 100%. love to close that underground economy because it's, I have an article coming out next week where I'm rebranding. You know how I inserted whole life into the English language? I have my- Right, now you regret it. No, I don't mind. It was been co-opted by your friends, but good for them. Um, but no, but I have a new one. Um, Anglo, I, I've, been, I've been wanting to write a response to Alexander Dugan. I don't know if you know who he is. He's Putin's brain. I've been studying Xi Jinping and Putin. And I want to write a response to Dugan defending the American liberalism, broadly understood. And I realized his critique of neoliberalism, it, it was reading his critique that it struck me. Neoliberalism is not liberalism. It's right. actually fascism. It's Anglo-fascism. Right. And yeah. it's rooted in Sartre and Heidegger, not the Glorious Revolution, the Magna Carta, the Federalist Papers, the Constitution. It has nothing to do with our political traditions. And um, so the neo-fascists, from Wall Street to the Chamber of Commerce, they lobby against every attempt to secure the border and have a mandatory verification system. Why? They want the status quo. They want a porous border. They want an underground economy because they, we have built this massive architecture of support for workers in America, and they have, they've discovered that with this massive architecture of support, whole industries will collapse, so we need, we need this illegal labor. We need labor that doesn't have protections to exploit, and I, and I really believe that's the deal. They know what they're doing. And so if we, if we secured the border and had a mandatory verification system, I want, I want immigration quotas that serve the interests of the American people and is also thoughtful to migrants. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, like asylum seekers? Asylum seekers. Thank you. That was, that was an awkward pause. Yeah, asylum seekers. I, I want to be, for example, last week I spent my whole week trying to get nine Yazidi girls here. And they're ending up going to somewhere in Europe, um, yeah. but they're asylum seekers. And it's a, you know, so I'm, I'm, I love. Look, we're all in my, you know, 
my family, your family, we're, our families are filled with immigrants. We're all immigrants. And, um, but what really embarrasses me, what's repulsive is that the most powerful, privileged Americans lobby and work for, on the one hand, they, they work against the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And on the other hand, they work against making sure every Amer everyone living and working in this country has the same architecture of legal protection. And that's what you're doing when you oppose E-Verify. That's what you, you're doing when you oppose border security. Um, because if we had a secure border mandatory verification system, we would, our immigration policy, those industries would advocate big quotas, right? They would advocate legal immigration in a process that got what those industries wanted, labor. Um, but then the labor would have what? Workplace protections. And so I don't see how you and I, dis I don't see where you and I disagree. Really, I don't know. I think that I see a lot of, because I understand border security, but I see a lot of mistreatment, obviously, for women and children when it comes to that. And so I, I don't know if it's just bad apples or kind of renegade people who are doing stuff, but I've just, I've seen too much of that to support it without the system being in place. That Do you mean like border can, agents or who's mistreating the migrants? Yeah, yeah, border agents and abusing women and, and just horrific stuff that's happened. And so I, and, and the fact that, you know, the stay in Mexico policy, right, where uh, just a few weeks ago, we had groups rounded up from ports of entry all along the border. So Brownsville, Montemoros, um, all these different border towns, and they were dumped in Juarez, which is a Qatar, uh, cartel stronghold. It is where we have the most dangerous um, kind of violence and femicide. It's quickly becoming the capital for torture porn. Um, the most horrific stories I've ever heard come out of Juarez. And yet you had a bunch of people, vulnerable people, rounded up, taken to detainment in Houston, um, and then flown flown here and brought down to, to Juarez uh, and just dumped in the streets. And so the New York Times covered it. The people were like, okay, where are we? Are we, are we in the United States? What's going on? Because they had set up these tent communities along the border where they were having charities and people coming out uh, with aid and services. And so... They were doing okay, and then all of a sudden they're dumped in a place where they have no connections, have no clue where they even are, and it was like a candy dish for the cartel, just offering up vulnerable people. And you know, years prior to that, the shelter had been filled with people who were stuck in in wars, uh, asylum seeking seeking migrants who were fleeing violence, had their children killed, had all this horrible stuff happen, and they were then told they had to stay in in wars, so they couldn't even, you know as horrific as these detainment centers are, couldn't even make it that far. They were all stuck there. And so when you have people who have absolutely nothing and the only thing they can do to feed their children is link up with the cartel and become, you know, trafficked and all of these other things, like what are we doing for these vulnerable women? And the sad thing is that even if they are going through the asylum process and accepted in the U.S., because the asylum process is so rigid when it comes to, it has to be gender, uh, religious persecution, things like that. Even a lot of these women don't qualify. I'll tell you a story that I think you'll find interesting about a Catholic asylum seeker. So I think he was down in El Salvador and he had been, he was like a youth minister at a local Catholic church and had um, started this youth group there. And he was pulling in all of these young people from the gangs and they were turning their lives around. And the gang saw this, killed two of his children, killed his in-laws. And so he ended up fleeing to Juarez 
and he's in Juarez now. And every single day he would go to mass. Uh, sorry, I'm not Catholic, so I'm trying to remember all the old words. But he would go to mass and he would take communion. And he told uh, our board member that the reason he takes the Eucharist every day is because it was paid for with the blood of his children. And it is something where he would not qualify for asylum because Catholicism is not viewed as a persecuted religion. And so even though it was 100% religious persecution that led him to, to seek asylum, it doesn't qualify. And so you have this whole mass of vulnerable people in the middle that we don't even have any type of um, loopholes for, any so type but, of visas so what, or anything. So, but here's the deal. Even as like in Catholic social teaching or in, the idea is he was from what country? I believe it was El Salvador, but I could be wrong. So here's my question for that. And look, I have a heart for these people, but you should you you should seek refuge in the closest safe country. There are a lot of countries, right, where he could have been protected from these gangs between us and El Salvador. I mean, right? are there? That's the problem. That it is so the cartel stronghold and the corruption within the government between the government and the cartel. Like it is most of South America. And so that is why they are coming to America because this is the one place where they do have that safety. And but isn't that kind of the white savior? I see this when I'm in the Middle East. People think that everyone should come here. I'm like, no one less cares about these people more than me. But you know, the best place for somebody from Iraq is Iraq, right? If 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 if, if you can um, make it to Kurdistan, you know, depending on where you are, um, Syria, maybe you should go to Jordan. Why don't other Gulf states, why don't the Gulf states take refugees? And I would say the same thing. We cannot, we have to get away from this idea that we're the only safe place in the world or that white European countries are the only safe place in the world. I think knowing all of the women at our children, our children in particular deals with women who have experienced sexual violence and most of them are pregnant when they get here. And that is violence that has happened on their journey here. So when you are traveling through towns and getting raped and exploited, and you end up here pregnant, I mean, I would argue that telling somebody that there were safer places along the way is just not their reality. So I understand why it is that they feel like America is kind of the only option, and we are trying to carve out safe places for them in wars. Yeah, And, well, and it's, it's incredibly hard to do because, of course, it's, there is just so much corruption. But you're down there at the border. I've been down there at the border plenty, and you see it is a big mess. And so even when they were they – were, um, Obama's cages. We know those were Obama's cages. Like we, right. Look, they have a big problem, a limited budget, and a, you know they're fighting to do the best they can with what they have. Uh, again, I, I am for separating children from adults. Why? We need to find out that the adults, that we know there's all these cases of abuse that are happening in these camps and at the border, and we know the children are trafficked across by people pretending to be their parents. I think that, could you imagine how tragic it would be if they're in our custody and the abuse is allowed to continue to happen? And so but that is exactly, that's exactly what's happening right now because of Title 42, which was enacted because of COVID. And so basically you have families who are incredibly scared in this very dangerous place in Juarez. And they know that if they send their kids across as unaccompanied minors, they will at least make it to a detainment center to some semblance of safety, which I would even argue it's still not safe, but it is safer than currently staying in Juarez. So you have all of these 
quote unquote, unaccompanied minors right now. But what people don't realize is these are not kids who are, you know, had coyotes bringing them here or were trafficked here or are without their parents. Many of their parents are right on the other side of the border. And sure, do DNA tests, do whatever you need to do, because the problem is that when we're trying to reunite some of these families, they can't get in contact or the families have been kidnapped in traffic. You know, the parents have. Um, there's a lot of horrific cases and horrific cases of of abuse, obviously, in these detainment centers. And I think that one of the things that I've heard them say quite a bit at the border is this is absolutely something Catholics and believing in Catholic social teaching need to be addressing. Like the reason we started going down to the border is because we are pro-life. And as pro-lifers, you tend to fall more in the conservative side, but as feminists, we fall more on the liberal side, right? And so the woman who um, runs the shelter, who's one of our board members now, she reached out and said, there is an abortion provider that has offered us a $10,000 grant to have access to our center. And Yeesh. she said, I, I need that money, but I can't take it because my women are pregnant through rape. And it would be probably pretty easy to try to coerce them into abortions that they don't want. That's been the amazing thing. These women don't want abortions. They just want help. And she said, but where are the pro-lifers? I am not seeing pro-lifers down here. Like nobody is helping us because this is an immigration issue, which is viewed as a left issue and not a pro-life issue like it's like it should be. And so we said, okay, wh what are we going to do? Like, let's do a fundraiser for you. It was during COVID. Um, we helped them out quite a bit more than the abortion provider would have. Uh, we don't really release any of the actual money we made because obviously we don't want to put a target on them, but we were able to supply them with a year's worth of supplies and help um, because I think that is what pro-lifers need to do. I think pro-lifers need to open their homes to these children who have been separated so that they do have a safe place to go. We can't sit here and complain about the abuses and the atrocities that are happening if we're not willing to step in and help in some way if we can. And I think that that is a calling, you know, I, I used to be a Protestant, right? And when the Bible talks about widows and orphans, I see nothing but widows and orphans when I'm down at the border. And this is absolutely 100% a place where the church needs to be. Well, you know, and I agree with you. I think we as Christians need to, to care for these folks, whether they're here or in Mexico or El Salvador, that Christians need to be there for them. I also think it's the role of our government to secure our border, to crush these car to crush these cartels, to do whatever it is that they have to do to, to bankrupt these cartels, um, to shut down these human trafficking routes. Yeah, let's, to let's smash the demand. Obama, to smash the Obama demand. Obama can quit sending him guns. Like we we've given them guns. Obama sent them guns. Drugs. You said it. That's Obama yes, sent them it. guns. I've one hundred percent been saying that since day one, which is why I don't hold out a ton of hope for Biden to correct any of this. Guns were sent. Americans are buying drugs from them constantly. Like we are the right. ones feeding this beast, making it bigger and bigger. That's preying on vulnerable children. And so I do think we have some responsibility as Americans to care for them. And at this point, I'm I'm almost a full-blown anarchist. And so I went from libertarian leaning to just burn it all down. I don't trust the government. They're not no. going to save us. We have to save ourselves. Burn it all down and build up what? No, what we need to do is we need to work with what we have. You're doing what you're doing. Um, you know, the you know I have a good, I don't even want to say his name. You know, I have a very good friend whose father and brother were kidnapped and murdered by the cartels. Um yeah, I have several friends. Whenever I go to Mexico City, I have a buddy who tells me about like the most recent time he was kidnapped. Um, <laughs> he's like, ah, they only they, they he calls them ATM kidnappings. You know, they they kidnap me and they ask for my family for just a little bit of money. They, and a, you know, like an ATM, they just need two hundred bucks or whatever. Um, but so it's a very complex issue. Powerful special interests gaslight us to divide us. 
But I think most Americans, like all sane, healthy Americans, would agree that we as a country should control our borders. We would agree that we as a country should work to make sure everyone in this country working uh, has the same architecture of legal protection, that we don't exploit, have a population of, you know, over 10 million people in an underground, trapped in an underground economy where they're being exploited. I think all of us would agree with that. And now we just need to work together to figure out it's prudential. These are all very complex issues that we're not going to solve in a 24-hour podcast, right? And and I'm not an expert in all of the nuances of and all of the challenges at the border. But the problem is, I think, Destiny, is people like you or I, we're not driving the policy, right? They, 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 we're, there's media campaigns in 2008... Yes, it was in 2008 in the, in the primaries, Republican primaries, is where I figured out the game. Money was coming in from the same special interests to get guys like Tom Tancredo. Do you remember him from Colorado, who was running for uh, president as an, uh, a hardliner? And he was saying, like, really things that to me were racist. Um, and I would could see how people would whether that was his intent or not, I could see how people perceived it as that, right? They were just really offensive statements on immigration. Then on the other hand, you had John McCain that was just advocating a policy uh, that was so permissive to be destructive and and encouraged actual exploitation um, by keeping the status quo um, with his, you know. um, And then you had guys like my candidate, Sam Brownback, that I felt had a very solid position on immigration. Um, but I realized the game, they push people to advocate insanity. Like on the one hand, you know, citizenship for known felons. Like we can't deport felons. Um, and then on the other hand, people, and I, I really believe it's repulsive not to support the DREAM Act, right? So um, dreamers are people trapped in this country because we have allowed this economy of exploitation of vulnerable migrants. And so if you're here, you're an American. If you went to third grade here, fourth grade here, sixth grade, eighth grade, you're, you're us, right? And so I think we need to fix that. That's the only hope I have for Biden. I think he's put himself into a box. Can we count on um, the situation with the Dreamers to be resolved in the next three years? I sure hope so. I hope that there's enough cultural pressure because people are, I feel like immigration's almost become the new abortion issue. People are talking about it as much as they used to. And I just think the really important thing is to humanize uh, migrants and get people to understand it and get them to put pressure on elected officials. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, making a phone call to your state rep and voting, that is the, that is the least of the activism people should be doing. That is the least of it. Like I said, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't hold out hope for anyone in government or any of these policies that are constantly changing and fluctuating to to save us. It literally has to be, what can you do in your community right now? Who can you help? I can promise you that whatever city you're in, there is a migrant population that needs support right now. There are pregnant women, there are small children who have been traumatized, who don't feel welcome in your communities. Like, do something right now. That is how we as human beings can change it, because we can you know, put all the hot air out into the world talking about what policies would be best. And I think, you know, that's a fun hobby. But at the end of the day, like, it's more than words. If, if you don't want to be like those on the left that just spew pretty words, like, it comes down to actions. What can you do today to help people 
that I feel like it is our duty uh, as those with this level of privilege, being winning the geographic lottery, being born in America, it is our duty to help them where we can. And I think that we have to be creative and um, do that because we can feel convicted in our hearts. These are our fellow human beings. You know, Jason, that is the one thing I love about you. I've beat up on you a bunch, but your thing about that, you stand with the vulnerable. Um, I love that. And I think that that's exactly what it is. We need more people to stand with the vulnerable, not, you know, send a check to the vulnerable, like, but also do that. If you want to send checks, please give them to us. We'll, we'll take them to the Yeah, shelter. Do you have a fund? But, we'll put it in the, we'll put it in the show notes where you, for your um, work at the border. Yes. Yeah. You can do our, our uh, campaign to the border. You can link to it, but also, you know, it's volunteering. It's coming down and staying up with a woman who's who's postpartum who just had a baby and helping her take care of her baby because obviously she doesn't have a partner because it was through sexual assault that she got pregnant and you know loving on her while she heals committing a week or two of your summer to coming down and and helping these people in these border towns like there are so many different ways that we can put actions behind those words so that those words actually mean something yeah and we know most people can't go to the border right so most people can't go to iraq most people can't go to sudan but no, but in, in your local but city, in your go to Catholic Charities. Yeah. Go to Catholic Charities. Find out what help they need with uh, the migrants when it comes to housing and things like that. Catholic Charities in most cities are dealing with immigration issues. And so I would say that is totally the thing. Think locally. What can you be doing in your local community? Because I guarantee you there's something to be done. And pregnancy centers, right? There's a lot of these pregnancy centers are also working with um Oh, a ton, a ton of the pregnancy centers. See, I would say that that is... Here's my frustration. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so take maternity clothes, take uh, children's clothes that your kids have outgrown, anything like that. Like, give them to these pregnancy centers because I can guarantee they will go to migrant women as well. But see, here's my frustration with Catholic Charities. You know, a big crack they get from the right, and there might be some truth to it, is they have made caring for migrants their business, and they oppose any effort to secure the border and to have mandatory verification systems. And it's like we need to if we we need to make a we need to create a manageable system. We need to make sure there's not an incentive. Um, you know, like you said, when you they come here, obviously, even though to us they're being exploited in an underground economy, it's still attractive. And so we're creating this economy of exploitation. And I would like to see Catholic charities support e verify mandatory verification system support securing the border and um and i'm grateful for the work they do with migrants but at the same time that's just a part of it we need to have um you know destiny if i had to have if i'm going to have a pool in my yard you have to have two fences right and and pretty much wherever you live in america you need you in your community will require a lawyer friend of mine told me this you will need a fence around the pool and a fence around your yard because you have to assume that your pool is going to be attractive to children. And so you're liable. If a child falls into your pool and you don't have these two fences, you're liable. We are responsible because of our open border and not having a verification system. We are responsible for this culture of exploitation. And um, we need to fix that. You know, it's And my it's, argument would be, invite the children in and supervise them while they're playing in your pool obviously <laughs> this is where we disagree but to your point of the invisible economy like i would say if there is a chance that you have employed uh maybe undocumented migrants or something like that then pay them a fair wage like that's something somebody can do whether it's somebody doing 
domestic work around your house or anything like that. Like there, there is a lot of control that we have to make sure that we are not participating in that exploitation beyond just not buying Nike, you know? Well, on that note, it's funny. I, we had these, uh, my office, my studio is being built. My wife hired this, this couple and they, they were, the husband didn't speak English. They were from Mexico and I was kind of embarrassed because I was leaving to go to a Trump rally and I had my stuff and I'm like, oh no, I hope I don't offend them. And it turned out they were huge Trump supporters. And I was talking to the wife and, I'm, and, and her whole reason for supporting Trump was immigration reform. She said, because their business is undercut. Um, as she said it like white people using illegals to undermine their business. And I was like, Whoa. So were were they were Blew they documented or undocumented? Oh, they were documented. You know? you know, they were American citizens. But the husband didn't speak English. They they became American citizens. And uh, she, but I, even that, even but, that, you have to understand, is like a luxury that most people don't get who are fleeing from violence. But what See, she said, but what she said was no. But isn't that amazing? But she said you got these white American uh, contractors that undercut us using illegal labor. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally like, agree that the white contractors blow are the me away, also, blew me away. But also, there's a theory of pulling the ladder up behind yourself, and so you made it here safely, and so now you're kind of screwing other people. Well, Wasn't I think when, no, she would have said, Jason, "This is a whole podcast. This isn't a segment true. anymore." No, I know. So we'll we'll, we'll change the subject, but I'll say is they would say they didn't, they didn't come over. They didn't use a ladder. They used the door, and the door's still open. And it's a door look, that's very hard to find. <laughs> Look, years and years to get through. And but then I don't resent through. people sneaking in this country because I sure would. Um, what I resent is us pretending people are sneaking in this country when really we're luring them here. You know, we're like a, right. an abuser that makes the victim feel responsible for their abuse. That's what we are. So, like, you know, really no one is sneaking in this country. We have a system of luring people here. I, is, just, I think how, how sad is it that even being invisible, right, and being exploited is still more desirable. Than yeah, no, and I understand it. And, look, I completely have a heart for it. But I just want us as a political community, because we didn't win the geographic lottery. We won the geography lottery. We won the political community lottery. We live in a beautiful political community. And if it, we had a political community like this in Brazil, we'd be fleeing to Brazil. Um, it's not our geography. It's it's our, our political. It's our polity. It's the it's our constitution. It's the Declaration principle. It's our political customs and heritage. I would say, not our geography that gives us this. But what you and I both agree is we love these people. We don't think they should be used as um, ornaments on election time. That we need a, we we need policy that is in their best interest. We can disagree on what those policies are. And, you know, and it's really hard to figure that stuff out. It's really complicated. Uh, and then yeah. e even if you have a good policy, for example, like when we're in Sudan, we're dealing with redemption. There's the big um, conflict, like, do we redeem slaves? But if we redeem slaves, are we creating a market for slavery? So do we not redeem slaves? Even if redeeming slaves creates a market for slavery, if your kid was enslaved and the only way you could get get them back would you redeem them 100 percent, you would so it's i get it's a very murky mixed thing but i just think the first thing we need to do and that's what this podcast is about is across the spectrum demand that left and right 
are working together to find prudential solutions for these, you know, find the best solution for these problems to serve the vulnerable. That's what we, that is a hundred, that's what we agree on. And, um, and I think most Americans are with us, right? That's why these special interests have to spend a lot of money uh, on PR firms and advertising and, and, and funding politicians to create this broken status quo because it wouldn't take much for us to get our country united around the idea of an immigration policy that, that serves the interests of our nation, protects the vulnerable Americans, and is thoughtful to the interests of vulnerable migrants. I think we can figure that out, and most Americans would agree that agree on on that right like wouldn't you agree you agree with me on that right yeah yeah and i think ultimately it is going to take all of us coming together and i think that we have to stop being pawns in a political game where it's us versus them we have to work together to find compromises and solutions that work for the vulnerable amen so what else let's end this with how do we what do you got going we will put your link to your work at the border down below Uh, we're yeah we're headed down this weekend actually we're headed back so um, we're going to be setting up just a little respite area for these families that are getting dumped right now because a lot of them um, have been taken to detainment. We're trying to figure out kind of the stories of what's going on there. But women showing up who were menstruating and just given a pair of shorts to put over their pants and not any feminine hygiene care and kids that have been dehydrated and are covered in, you know, throw up and vomit and, and diarrhea. I mean, like horrific stuff and weren't even allowed to take showers. And so we want them to be able to... Uh, Get clean, just respect their human dignity, have a meal, have a safe place to stay for the night, um, get cleaned up, get fresh new clothes. So we're taking down a bunch of stuff this weekend and hopefully kind of going to set up that rested area and uh, work on the shelter a bit. I'm going to put on overalls and like, I'm going to look like cute Rosie the Riveter. I'm going to paint some stuff, I think. I'm excited about that. (laughs) But it's just, it's such a beautiful community. It's so many phenomenal people there and we just want them to feel as loved and seen. Uh, we work with a group called Hosno Solaire. That's uh, kind of the name of the group that runs the shelter, and it stands for Make Us Count. That's what it translates to. And so we just want them to know that we see their human dignity and that they're valued and loved by us. That's, I'm going to come down with you this month. I can't this weekend. My son has a swim meet. But, um, okay. I, I I'll will, hold you to it. No, no, I will. I will come down this month. You are. I love that I am your best frenemy. <laughs> You're my very best frenemy. And you probably have a lot of, do you have a lot of frenemies? No, just, just maybe you. I, so, I, so it's not a big I, deal. I'm your, I feel like, well, no, no, no. We'll get matching pendants. It'll be like a heart broken in half. You can wear one side, I'll wear one oh, side. That's it's a best brilliant idea. You can wear it with your scapular. It'll, it'll be cute. But do you know, like I'm secretly plotting to convert you to Catholic. I don't care about making you conservative, but I just, I'm secretly plotting, praying, you and, asking you and saints. Co- to intercede, even you though you, Saint, even though you calumnize, even though you slander our saints, where I'm still not even. I'm teasing. Not even. I'm teasing. I'm t- too soon. If, if too you soon, and Saint Solomina is that Saint too soon? is after me. It is too soon. I <laughs> I love y'all saints. I love the history of your church. Let's Don't end on that. Let's it, end but... on that. Do we want to talk about that or no? Not at all. Oh, me getting fired? Yeah. I mean, yes, but again. If like, I knew please. if I knew that letter campaign I organized would have gotten you fired, I would not have done it, I promise. You and, Taylor, is it Taylor Marshall, Tyler Marshall? Taylor, Whatever. you know his name. 
Don't no, I to. always get it messed up because I read it, and so I don't ever. Think so Taylor, it. you know, he's a, a good friend of mine, and he, by the way, he lives in Dallas, and he's a good guy. So I didn't even know Taylor played a role in this. What? Okay, so tell. Let's <laughs> let's end on a happy note. You getting fired from a Catholic <laughs> publication? Okay, tell everybody what. Happened. Yeah. So Taylor is the one who named what my book's going to be called eventually when I uh, come out with it. My Saint stories. It's going to be called Blasphemous Trash because that's what his tweet in response to it was. Um, but yeah, I was just writing saint stories kind of in a drunk history style as an agnostic outsider's view um, because I had these weird things with St. Philomena happen where it was just popping up and she's a saint a lot of people don't even really know that well. And so I wrote about it on my Facebook and people were like, oh, she's after you. And so I looked it up and she died on my birthday. There were just these strange things that kept happening. And so Catholic Herald reached out uh, after I'd written a little piece about St. Philomena and they're like, write about more of our saints. These are funny. I think they're trying to kind of get the younger audience. And so I ended up um, writing this series. And if you read all of them, then you would understand the tone that it's like drunk history of the saints style. But I wrote one about St. Mary of Egypt. Um, yeah, well, let's not who, go into what you said. I, I was I was shocked, <laughs> honestly. I, I was I, shocked that they I was shocked that they did not edit it. Right. He said, write it the way that you would normally tell it. Like if you're hanging out with your friends and telling them, trying to get them interested in things, write it and I'll edit it. And it was not edited at all. And so, poor St. Mary of Egypt. Um, and so, then they, I, I basically, there was some, like two weeks after it, somebody finally found these articles. And that was their first introduction to me. Rod Dreher also went after it, which I really liked him. He used to write for the Dallas Morning News in Dallas. So, it was it was hard. And all these um, priests were really mad about it. And no, Rod Dreher. Canceling. Look, I'm, I am, Rod Dreher is a weird bird. Like, he, he is a prude let me just put it like he the <laughs> things that get his um if i were to say his panties in a bunch is that sexist i'm, I'm nervous talking to you the things that get his panties. well now in, i'm picturing now i'm picturing him in like really panties yeah well like this. well he probably i'll just leave it at that let's just stop there no but the problem with roger <laughs> is the things that get him upset it's the sexual politics stuff like he's yeah. a hard liner like a hard right wing guy on that stuff um but when it comes to like political religious and economic freedom he's a squish and so a lot of people on the left are attracted to him but yeah. and i don't know how he's survived in cancel culture so long with he's like um he's like the church lady when it comes to sexual politics you're like pat buchanan like the hard 1980s right puritanical right <laughs> and then and then but when it comes to political religious and economic freedom he'll flush that all down the toilet um, and, and I think that is, he's, he's, that he's an illiberal is what he is. He's a, he's an illiberal. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just, so I it doesn't like surprise him. me at I all. You, him, you were supposed so. to like him. You know, the, the left loves him because he's soft on political, religious, and economic freedom. So, yeah. you know, uh, so he, he, he wasn't a fan. And so I told Catholic Herald, if you guys want me to resign, I can. And they're like, absolutely not. Like, you're not going to resign. But then, like, two days later, after it blew up more on Twitter, they were like, all right, you've officially been canceled. Can we take you up on that? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'm not Catholic. It was fun to write about. And, you know, here's the deal. I, in the beginning, I was kind of exploring things that would come to mind or I'd see somewhere. And the weird thing that kept happening is when the articles were published, it would just happen to be on their feast day. And I have no knowledge of these things. And then, like, it just felt like there was something kind of going on there. But then after a while, it became just a deadline. I was supposed to be four months. And so I was kind of a little bit, uh, 
you know, disconnected from it. And now if I explore the saints, I get to do it uh, kind of in probably a more spiritual leaning way than, than just writing articles. So I'm not done with y'all saints. Sorry do about you, that. Do you, find, sure like me to be done. do you find that you were also, you were on deadline and did you feel like maybe you were, cause I find this with myself, like you're wrestling not to become a caricature of yourself. I think I found that I would just, it would get to the point where I'm like Googling, like, cause I was only doing female things. Cause growing up Protestant, like we've got Ruth and Esther and stuff, but like, we don't have this, we didn't have this huge, like spectrum of just, no, the sexist Catholic women. church, the sexist Catholic church is the only institution in the world that has a 2000 year tradition of uh, celebrating women. You know? I mean, y'all just have a lot of really badass women. And so it was really interesting to get to kind of, look into their stories and read more about them and kind of explore that. And, but then I got to the point where I'd be Googling like weird lady saints no one's ever heard of, like patron saint of uh, cats, you know, and just like trying to find funny things. And so that's kind of what was happening. And I think now I just get to explore them much more organically. And this is, this is a good thing for my lost heathen agnostic soul. And then are you going to write a book? Are you going to turn this into a book? Well, that was the idea. But here's the thing. Could you imagine if my first book ever is Catholic Saints from an agnostic perspective? Like, that seems so silly to me. I feel like my first book should be about New Wave Feminists. But, I mean, if I end up having a bunch of them, maybe. It'll be self-published, obviously, because nobody in the world... No, I, I think we can get it published. But, but you know, um, <laughs> uh, do you know what an agnostic... Mark Twain said an agnostic is? What? An agnostic is an, is an atheist who's afraid to say it out loud because then God will hear. That's pretty funny. So I think that's you. I think I, I just always say I go to the church of, I don't know. I think there's a lot of beauty and truth and a lot of faith. And I'm kind of trying to cobble together what that looks like. So at best I'm an evangelical. at worst. I'm, I'm just an agnostic floating around who believes in a higher power. So at least I have that going for me. Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. And see, I kept my word to you. We didn't talk about immigration. See how I did that? <laughs> we didn't even... You're going to cut out. You're going to cut out that whole 30 minutes that took this from being a quote unquote segment to a full blown podcast episode, by the way. No, I interviewed Jamie Kennedy. He's on the show today that came out. He's on the show that came out yesterday. It's going to be a five hour long podcast. Jamie Kennedy. I did a five hour interview with Jamie Kennedy, but we're going to, we, we cut it way down. So it's the show before yours. And, um, Fair. But I had to cut it down because I felt he didn't realize who he was, who I was, right? I could tell he was Googling me in the middle. So Jamie Daily, Kennedy, like the comedian? Yeah, so he's on the show uh, yesterday. So listen to the show before yours. And I had to edit it way down because we talked forever. He only asked, he said 25 minutes, great. But we ended up just talking forever. But in the middle of it, I could tell he was Googling me and going, oh, crap. <laughs> because the reason he was on the show was Daily Beast tried to cancel him for being in the Roe v. Wade movie. And he was like, yo, I'm just an actor. I go out for auditions. I I don't know who the extras were. I don't know who financed this film. What? I don't know the legal history of America. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a historian. I'm not an expert in Planned Parenthood. I'm an actor. Leave so, me. You know, it was a great interview because... He, he basically solidified his canceling. Like, they were thinking about canceling him. Then he does the Jason Jones show. Right. Well, no. 100%, 100%. Like, he's like, wait a second. Am I going to be canceled for being on your show? I'm like, brother, we do not have to air this. And he's like, no. Nah. Here's, here's the good news. 
I've been canceled multiple times. Um, my last canceling, you actually had me on after the best thing. And so as long as you refuse to accept the canceling, guess what? You still get to exist and put your nonsense out into the world. So it's actually like I, I now have six canceled skin where I just bounce back every time. It gets easier. Just let it's, them know. After no, you cancel, it gets easier. No, they just, they just, if the worst, the very worst, they press the pause button. They can't press your stop button, right? And, and sometimes we need a pause, right? Sometimes we need a pause. Um, but yeah, no, poor Jamie Kennedy. He was, uh, and then, but you know, I said we can flush the whole show. I don't have to put it up. I'm a gentleman, right? I don't want to be a part of causing you pain and suffering. Do I, do I have that option? Do I have that option? You don't, one? actually. <laughs> okay. You don't. And then QAnon. When I bring QAnon guests on, they always, after I interview them, they're like, can you please not air that? I'm like, nah, we're going to air it. Maybe that was redundant, what you just said. How do you know I'm not QAnon? Are you, are you QAnon? I mean, nobody knows. Do you, are, you, are, you Q, are you Q? You are Q. Just saying. Wow. You never see me and Q in the same room at the same time, do you? I, I never have. I have never. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, anyway, all right. And what are we ending on that? Are we done? Yeah, no, that's the end. Me being Q is the end. I'm done talking. You need a, your pillow was eaten by a dog, right? So you need to go to um, MyPillow.com, click on the Radio Listener Square, use the code Jones for deep discounts. You can get uh, you can get the pillow, but you can get the slippers right now for 40% off. Because dogs don't like slippers, right? So I'd be safe if I just get the slippers? Well, it's 40% off. You get two pair. Get one for your dog <laughs> to chew, and then get one for you, because they are the best slippers ever. You can wear them indoor, outdoor. And are you a vegetarian? I'm from Texas. That's illegal. Okay. You can't be well, you're a feminist. I don't even know your hair was purple. But I'm I'm a Texan more than anything. Would you wear fur? Um. Would you wear mm-hmm. fur lined slippers? I mean, not like a. Are they fur? What type of fur was it? Something well, no, cute? it's it's faux fur. It's this is oh, the good news. Fur. If okay, you get fur. the my pillow slippers, it's faux fur, and uh, so even a lefty like you can be happy in them. Yay! Hooray! Right? So go to MyPillow.com. This episode has been brought to you by Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. Go to MovieToMovement.com. Watch your latest movie, Divided Hearts of America, which Destiny was cut out of. Bam. True story. I was mostly cut out of it, too. And go to the Vulnerable People Project at TheGreatCampaign.org. Become a monthly donor for $20, and you get a free copy of my book, which Destiny wrote a blurb for. Did you write a blurb for my book? God, no. Okay, which, well then, Destiny <laughs> wouldn't endorse my book, which means you know it's great. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Um, until later this week, it's the Jason Jones Show with Destiny. Aloha. Say aloha, Destiny. Oh, bye, best friend of me. Aloha. Aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Thank you.